Actually, it's good to be back. It's been a few weeks since I have been up here to share with you, and we're grateful that uh, have the opportunity to come back and and get a chance to to share with you what I, what I believe God has laid on my heart for today. Um, and so, if you have your your Bibles, open them to the twelfth chapter, First Chronicles chapter twelve. We're going to go there in just a moment for a, a kind of an extended reading. I want to say to you too that we are going to receive at the end of service here communion together. I did so with our worship team prior to service because they don't get a chance. They're, they're up here at the end of the service to receive communion. So we try to do that with them in advance. And uh, we have kids class this week. Um, if you're in the auditorium and have your kids and you want them in the classes, there's kids class this week. There will not be next week. We're alternating every other week until we get our manpower back. Uh, we are grateful for all those of you who are here, and uh, I know it's, it, is, it is much different to be able to be here than watching online, but for some that's not an option, and we're glad you're tuned in. We're glad you're able to watch us online. We're praying each week that what is happening in the sense of, of the presence of God here that we sense and feel is what you sense and feel in your living rooms, in your office, uh, maybe workplace, uh, wherever it might be that you are catching us today, uh, hopefully not driving down the road trying to watch, okay? But we're grateful that uh, you've tuned in, we're grateful you're here, but we're going to be receiving communion. I want to say that to you, those of you that are online, because it's symbolic that we have used grape juice and, and uh, cracker. Whatever you have in your house is a symbol of what is going to happen. So if it's just water, if you have some juice, if you have a cracker, you have a little bit of bread, uh, prepare that, get that ready, and then at the end uh, we will all receive that together, both the on-campus here and online. Again, uh, God has something great in store for us today. Message is about understanding the times, the sons of Ishkar. Uh, chapter 12 out of 1 Chronicles, beginning uh, at verse 23. So you want to fall down to verse 23 with me and let's look at this and read together. Now, these are the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him, according to the word of the Lord. So the, the armies are coming to present the kingdom uh, to God. Every, every kingdom is a kingdom because it's secured, it's, it has uh, an army that protects it and and watches over it. And so these mighty men of valor are gathering together and it lists them. And I, I will kind of skip through reading some of these. I want to give you a feel for uh, those that were gathering to, uh, to recognize that David is the new king. Saul is no longer the king, but David is the new king. Of the sons of Judah bearing shields and spears, 6,800 armed for war. Of the, of the sons of Simon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, 7,100. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoda, the leader of the Aaronites, uh, and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, a valiant uh, warrior, and from his father's household, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives and Saul, 3,000. Of the sons of Ephraim, uh, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house. And then it 
reads an important section of what we're going to talk about today. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by the name uh, by, by the name to come and make David king. And here it is, of the sons of Ishkar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200, and their brethren were at their command. If you skip down to the very last uh, verse there, verse 38, in this section that we're reading, all these men of war who could keep ranks, came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. Something disturbing to me personally uh, happened several weeks ago. And it was very troubling in my spirit as, as we came into uh, the year, and uh, this goes back really to November when we were uh, looking forward. We had spent time during the year praying about a theme for the year and what God would say. Several things were happening that were kind of triggering uh, this word, awaken. And uh, I could go through those. I won't, for those of you who are, are here, you've heard this a few times. But there were several things that were happening around us. Uh, that really God began to trigger that word awaken. And it was, in my uh, spirit, a, a, an alarm bell that went off. Now, I had no idea what we were going to be facing in 2020, as did uh, none of the rest of us, right? It, it really came in, uh, this pandemic, uh, first uh, and foremost. It, I had no idea what was, that this, uh, the level of this was going to be in. But I did have an alarm going off that God was calling us to really grow people up, to disciple them, to equip them, to awaken them, to shake our church in the sense of, of an awakening spiritually, to get ready. And so I had a sense that if God's doing that, there's going to be an attack of the enemy, but really no way to understand how globally this thing was going to impact us. But it's followed here in the United States by... Uh, what, what happened that disturbed me several weeks ago, and that was this, this move uh, for social justice, this cry against racism, and, and uh, it really sparked almost immediately and was set ablaze and began to, to move uh, throughout our culture in, in a rampant uh, pace. And uh, we had, uh, we've seen things before in the past. I, I would hearken us back to, you know, uh, the, the resistance uh, when, when we had the... Um, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. We saw that even here in, in Austin. We saw around the Capitol and all of that, things that were going on. But this moved at such a rapid pace. And I think one of the things that really alarmed me about it was what was going on in the church, in the church world. Now, in the church world, we have uh, influencers uh, like they do in uh, social media on uh, all kinds of stages for, for design. Uh, you know, designers have influencers and, and uh, different stores and brands have designers and influencers. And of course, there are Christian influencers, right? People that we like and we look up to and we watch. Uh, we enjoy their music. We enjoy their talents and their skill sets for speaking. And, and, uh, but there was something that was happening in, uh, in, in a fairly broad sense among influencers that did not seem right. Several highly visible, uh, recognizable Christian leaders seem to be uniting in a message that didn't seem biblical to me. 
and I'm speaking for myself. And what I, what I was taking from what I was hearing was uh, it had much more of a ring of accuser than it did a, a ring of healer and uniter. And it, and it triggered me thinking back about the awakening that God has been calling us to, and I don't think just our church, but you know that God has been calling his church to, I think for a good long time. But I thought about the primary tactic of our enemy, Satan, who uses uh, the, uh, is in the role of accuser to do so much damage among us. It is his primary tactic. And we can see a picture of it. We see it throughout the Bible. But here's a, here's a glimpse of it right in the courts of heaven. Listen to this out of Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, it's, it, it's enough, right, that you feel like that Satan's always accusing God to you, right? He's always, you know, telling you God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. Harkens back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, the, the fall of mankind, when... God's holding out on you. You really, you know, he's given you, yes, he gave you the garden and all of these trees, but there's one tree that God said you can't have. And that's the one that he doesn't want you to have because God doesn't want you to be like him, right? And so the accuser has always operated that manner, but can you imagine, so he's, he's always accusing God to us, but can you imagine Satan standing in God's court accusing you to God? And here's a picture of it right here in Zechariah chapter 3, um, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I wrote a series of articles, uh, blog posts that we have on our, our blogs uh, and our website. and encourage you to you get a chance to read them on the dragon. And the first one is dealing with the dragon as the accuser. The dragon has mastered that role of accuser. And, and here's how he does it. We have a slide for that we can show you. He accuses us to God. He accuses God to us and us to each other. He, he is always working every angle of that. He accuses us before God, just like this passage we read. They're not worthy. You shouldn't listen to them. They don't really mean what they're saying. They're not your child. First chance they get, they're going to turn their back on you. You might remember in the book of Job, uh, that he said, you know, God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He says, yeah, but if you remove all the blessings from his life, if you remove protection from his life, we'll find out if Job really loves you. We'll find out if Job's really going to serve. That's the work of the accuser, the dragon. And then, and then he accuses God to us, just like we gave the example in Genesis chapter 3 and on and on. You have heard his voice say to you, God is not concerned about your plight right now. God doesn't care about your health. God doesn't care about your finances. God doesn't care about your future. God doesn't care about you know, whether you're a conservative or a liberal or whatever. God is not, not concerned about what you're concerned about, what you care about. God doesn't care about social justice. You've heard all of these accusations all of us have if you've lived on this planet for six seconds right 
And then, and then also, he is accusing us to each other, right? They don't think like you think. They don't believe like you believe. They don't believe God's word. They don't care about other people. They don't care about you. They don't care uh, what's going on in your life and what's happening to you. They're okay. They're blessed. They're privileged in some way. They have some way been removed from humanity's experience. And therefore, they are not like you. And you can't trust them. You can't love them. You can't welcome them in your circle. And he does this because by dividing us from God and from one another, it leaves us very vulnerable, isolated, and trapped. It's like the, the, the being in, the, um, in, in uh, Africa where the, where the lions are hunting and they, they try to isolate out members of the pack of, of zebras or whatever they're chasing for today's menu, right? And they want to isolate out just one, wound just one, hurt just one, get one isolated and separated away, and that will become their meal. They will devour it. And often throughout Scripture, Satan, the dragon, is referred to also as a lion, as a devourer, as, a, as one who's come to destroy. And we say it quite often as Christians, that we talk about that we are at war, but the problem is we don't really live like we're at war. And I think that's what was, that this, the theme was all about, you know, at the beginning of the year, awaken. We're not really living like we are at war. We're not always ready for battle. We're not recognizing what's happened. And I have to be quite honest that some of these things that have happened in recent days really took me by surprise. And, and I've always considered that I thought that I could see some of the signs and things that God was doing and, and had a good eye for watching for the hand of God. And yet the enemy has, has had a masterful plan that he's been unfolding across our nation recently to divide not only our nation uh, as uh, in the the broad sense of culture and to divide us into various kinds of, of groups and, and get us ununited so that we are not connected to anything and we have no foundation with which we can come together and say we all belong or we all are whatever. But he's also done a masterful job in doing that inside the church. And, and what I was seeing in some of these responses was, was confusing in the sense of uh, not surprising to me that he had already made such an inroad in the church as to see some heretical kind of uh, doctrines, heresy doctrine, and things beginning to surface even inside the church. Not just outside the church, but even inside the church. We talk about we're at war, but we don't live like we know we're at war. The spiritual battle that is raging around us is for the soul of humanity. And in his work, Christ and Culture, I was sharing this with the, um, the worship team before service. Dr. Richard Niebuhr, and we have a slide for this, he wrote, The world of culture, man's achievement. The world of culture is man's achievement, right? Uh, but it exists, and we need to remember this because this is an encouraging thing for us as Christians. Man's world, man's achievements exist within the world of grace, God's kingdom. God's kingdom. So whatever we see going on and whatever amount of chaos that we think is, is unfolding around us and how, when it looks like it's completely out of control and man is just, just 
flailing away and angry and cities burn and all kinds of other things are taking place. We understand that this is all under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. It belongs to him. It's his kingdom. And he gets the final word on everything that will take place. Christianity is on the front lines of a spiritual war that has raged against mankind since Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. Listen as we just kind of go through what happened at the fall of man and how quickly the world became depraved when mankind sinned and, and fell into sin. Men experienced for the first time separation from God. I think we have a slide on this one as well. Man experiences for the first time separation from God. He is, he is divided or separated from God. For the first time, man recognizes that there's a chasm between him and God. He had had a walking, talking relationship with God that required really, you know, it was as natural as breathing and, and it was just automatic worship and automatic presence of God. And now suddenly his sin had divided him from a holy God. The second thing that we see is that Satan immediately upon the fall of man becomes the prince of the world. And Jesus talked about it in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, when he confronts that and says, you know, he's been the prince of this world, but my coming now is calling that into, uh, is calling his days numbered and that it's about to come to an end. And here, let's read it. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The second thing that happened was that Satan becomes the prince of this world. The third thing we see taking place there is man and, and uh, woman become ashamed of their appearance. They've, they've lost their sense of, of identity, of, of purpose. Uh, they recognize only their shame and they recognize uh, what, what is bad about them and not, not what is great about them that God created. They're focused on, on that. And, and we see uh, third or fourth, we see the first murder take place. Genesis chapter four, verse eight. And it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him. Remarkable story. We've talked through that story before and the, the ramifications of that going forward for mankind. But I, I've often thought as a father, you know, and, you know, with Adam and with Eve, you know, how grievous that would have been. You know, it's one thing for us to hear about a murder, you know, in another country, uh, across town, uh, in another city. Of people that we don't know, and it's, you know, we think that it's a sad thing. It's, you know, often we may whisper a prayer, ask God's comfort over those people, but can you bring it home and think about your children doing violence to another one of your children and, and what that, what, how grievous that is. And this is the hold that sin began to take and how devastating it was to live with on a day by day basis living with sin. And then just a few chapters later, evil corrupted mankind to such a point 
in, in chapter 6. These are, this is three chapters later as we're reading in, in Genesis, recognizing it's, it's, it's many years, but it's still a short period of time in the span of, of, of mankind. And here we are in chapter 6, and God is, is, is required now to, to destroy the earth with a flood. God saw, it says, how corrupt, I'm reading out of uh, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is just three chapters into the fall of mankind, and we're reading about the, the level of sin and violence that's taking place. Only six chapters into the book. And it looks like that God and man, are, their relationship is going to end prematurely. It's going to be finished. But thank God for Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus established the church as it would always be that kind of noatic look that God had down on the earth when he sees his church, the image of Christ, reflected back to him, no matter how evil, no matter how awful, no matter how terrible the world would become, that when God would look down, he would see the reflection of Jesus, the head of the church, as he looked on mankind. Father, look down here and see what's going on, but see it through me so that you would have mercy. Forgive them, for they don't know what they do. In every generation, God has had men and women who have found grace in the eyes of the Lord, who have become intercessors for mankind, and now we as the church, we play that role. Men and women who have understanding of the times, and we operate like we are smart enough and have intelligence enough to know what is going on around us. These were the sons of Ishkar. And this today is what I believe God wants the church to be. The sons of Ishkar who understand the times. They see who's rising. They see who's falling. They know how to speak wisdom into the moment and the circumstances. New Testament begins with God's response to those who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the birth of Jesus. Galatians 4 and 4, Paul talks uh, Backward about that in saying, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law. But the amazing thing about that was that no matter how uh, battle ready many would be, that there was a lack, if we lack understanding of times, the tactics on the battlefield, we can become casualties of the battle. And so when David saw all of these great men of valor stepping out to, to anchor the kingdom, and he saw those who would carry shields and swords, and, and those who were skilled, and, and those who had extreme talent in the, on the battlefield, 
What he was really happy to see, I'm certain, was the sons of Ishkar who had the wisdom as to how to use that. History is littered with the stories of, of, of great battles that were won by uh, men and women, uh, were won by men who, who shouldn't have won that battle in the first place because they were, they were outnumbered, uh, it, they, were, they were outgunned in a sense uh, of using that term for the, the tools and weapons of warfare. They, they had no reason to, to win that battle and yet they did because they were tacticians. They were able to fight smart. They were able to fight wise. And so a smaller number of them, God took, you know, just he, he narrowed the, the army down to 300 with Gideon. He says, you know, you're going to be facing 22,000 of your enemy. And all I need is 300. I need and I will win the battle. But I need the 300 who understand the times, who can listen to my commands and march forward, who are not going to be swept up by culture and everything else that's going on and drift away. I need those who will listen to me, follow me, and you select those out. And he gave them a method for that. He says, you're going to go down to the creek and everyone who laps like, you know, like a dog would lap or a wild animal would lap is, is, is down there in the water just sucking up the water. They are, there's no sense of awareness of what's going around them. They're just trying to take care of their immediate need, the thirst. But go find those that scoop the water up and drink it from their hands and are surveying the landscape to see if they would be taken by surprise by the enemy. And of those men, select. And unfortunately for Gideon, only 300 of them did that. <laughs> he was like, we have a take two. Can I give a little lesson on uh, warfare? We can do take two and then everybody will scoop up with their hands and drink appropriately. God says, nope, I only need 300. Men who understand the times, the sons of Ishkar, they could discern what God was doing and when he was doing it. They knew when to move. Um, when, when one move of God was, was ending and another move of God was beginning, they could discern when a leader was falling and when another was rising. They could even tell you when the next leader uh, should be or who, who the next leader should be. They knew who to follow and, and when to follow him or her. Sons of Ishkar also excelled in the knowledge of God's law. They were full of God's wisdom. And in fact, God chose the sons of Ishkar as one of the three tribes to go out in front of Israel and to lead the nation. He chose Judah first, the praising and worship uh, part of that uh, team to, that went out first to praise and lift up the name of God. But Ishkar he chose to be second, the wise and the discerning ones. And then Zebulon, the financers. And that's a great team for success, right? The worshipers of God who love God with all their heart, followed by the wisdom of God uh, marching throughout the land and the resources of God behind that to take hold of whatever needs to be taken hold of, to, to meet whatever need needs to be met. And that's how God wants, I believe, the army of the church to be marching into what we are facing right now. Worship wisdom and the resources. The sons of Ishkar were so sharp and so spiritually astute that the whole nation depended on them 
to know what, ought, uh, to, what they ought to do, to turn right or left, how they ought to, uh, to work tactically to, against what the enemy was trying to accomplish. First Chronicles 13.32, we read a moment ago of the sons of Ishkar, who had the understanding of times to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200, and all of their brethren were at their command. Do you know the times that you're living in? Do you know where we are on God's calendar? Have you inquired and been asking of God, God, what is going on? I was a, a, a teenager of the 70s, the 1970s, not the 1870s, though that could be. <laughs> and there was a lot of preaching and teaching about the coming of the Lord, the Messiah's return. It seemed like every service there was a message about Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Are you prepared? I'm asking you this morning, online and on campus here, do you know what is going on? Do you know what's happening? What the signs point to that are happening all around us? Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through 56, Jesus admonished and rebuked a group of, of religious people with these words. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? How is it that you do not discern this time? There were over 300 predictions of the work and person of Jesus Christ. Down to where the coming of the Messiah would be. The last prophecy in the Old Testament is about where Jesus would be born. Thou, O Bethlehem. And Jesus is, is speaking to them about this and so much more. They were not ready for his coming. He, uh, it was prophesied about how he would die. And that he would raise on the third day. Was there this great crowd of thousands standing around Jesus' tomb on that third day when it's time for him to be resurrected. The first resurrection party. Everybody's sitting there, you know, they're together and they're waiting. It's a countdown, 10, nine. There was nobody. In fact, the women who came were coming to, to prepare the body. They were hoping that, that, that somebody would take mercy on them, the, the guards there, and, and roll it back so they could prepare Jesus' body. They could anoint it with, with oils and perfume. They weren't coming there to see the resurrected Savior. Yeah. They did not understand the times. They did not understand what was going on. And Jesus is, is calling our attention to that. Do you understand the times that we are living in right now? Do you know what to do? How to prepare? Are you missions focused or are you self-preservation focused? As Christians, 
We live life differently. We grieve differently. We see this life on earth differently. I have never in my life decided to live reckless because I'm a Christian. I, well, I can do anything, man. I'm going to jump off the Grand Canyon, you know. This, <laughs> one mile down, I'm like, you know, I belong to God. If he wants me to live, I will live. If he doesn't, I will die. Guess what? I'm going to die. <laughs> I've never lived reckless like that as a Christian, and I'm not calling you to live reckless. But listen, God has given us a different way of looking at this life. I'm not walking around making decisions about my life based on death. What if I got sick or what if I die? I don't make decisions that way. I try to make decisions based on his kingdom and the mission that he's given me. It takes us sometimes places that are dangerous. From the first time I entered ministry, I remember a good friend of mine had a, had a, a successful street ministry in Phoenix, Arizona, and I wanted to be a part of it, and I joined him. He was a, a successful youth pastor. They had a growing group, and we were going into places that were frightening. We were going into drug-infested places. People were shooting up on the staircases that we were walking up, you know, several st stories up. It was horrible uh, the way humanity was living in these environments. Uh, you know, I, I could describe it to you. It's, it's just, it's beyond. I hope that you can just use your imagination. It was unbelievable. It was, it was to the point where I, I've never, you know, had a lot of wealth of any kind, but I had a ring on, a, a gold ring on from my uh, graduation, high school graduation. I pocketed that sucker the first time we went thinking, okay, you know, that's immediately what they're going to want off of me, is that shiny thing on my hand. It was a frightening environment to go into. And from that point forward, recognizing that often ministry is going to take me to dangerous places, dangerous situations. Fast forward to the pandemic. We have walked up to the doors of people we know are suffering from sickness, sent there by God. We are carrying food. We're carrying prayer. We're being safe. We're not being reckless. But we are living in this world like we're living in the kingdom of God, not like we're living in a kingdom of fear. God has called us as a church to be a beacon of light, and that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Wherever God calls us, wherever he wants us to do, there's no need for us to stumble into the traps that the enemy has set one trap after another. Matthew chapter 24, verses 24 and 25, Jesus talked about the last days, and he said, For false prophets, false messiahs, and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. You know, one of the roles of uh, pastors and elders here at the church is to watch over you, to care for you, and and uh, not to, you know, allow you to drift away with false heresies and things like this, to preach the truth and to preach it in love. And it, but, but on the other side of things, you know, you have to make this your home and you have to make us your spiritual leaders. If, if, if everybody on the planet has an, an equal space to speak theology into your life, it's going to be a confusing Bit. Just what I was talking about in the opening part of that. 
these Christian influencers, which I love them and, and praying for them and care for them, but many of them who were on the wrong side of, of what was going on theologically, wrong side, telling it right now. Um, they, if, if, if they are speaking into our lives and they become a big part of what's speaking in our lives, it can move us away from center of what God's word is calling us to do. God called me here, he sent me here, he's prepared me here. I'm far from perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. I will own those mistakes when I make those mistakes. But God is calling us to keep his mission central, no matter what kind of storm is raging around us and what's going on. God wants his children to live in the light of wisdom and understanding of the times. Ephesians chapter 2 and 10 for... We are God's handiwork. Listen to this in a moment. Created in Christ to do good works for God prepared. What is that? In advance. In advance for us to do. God has prepared in advance in you things that you don't even realize. To face what you are facing right now. To get through the circumstances in advance. God prepared his workmanship inside of you. You just need to surrender his lordship and follow his leading. God knew we would be here right now. He knew what would be going on around us. And that this would be a season of life in which you and I are living in. Our worship team is, is coming as we're preparing to close. Living in ignorance is a choice right now that we can't afford to make. We cannot afford to make the choice of ignorance. I, I am a human just like you, and when this thing kicked off and, you know, the pandemic, and we were thrust into this, and they said, just, you know, give us two weeks. Well, let's make it three. And uh, we all thought this is going away, and we all, you know, started living our lives like this will all be over. We'll just go through this little short season, and, and uh, it hasn't gone away. And uh, in fact, you know, where we live, there's been a little bit of spike in, in, in what's going on. And, and we're having to live through it. Why? Why are we having to live through this? As a church, we have an answer for the world. There were times that God took his nation, his people, into captivity by other nations to bring them bring him back to the right place where he needed to be. In Psalms, there's a passage of uh, Babylonian captivity, kind of a poet writing where they say, we, you know, the worshipers were talking, and they said, we hung our harps on the willow. We wept when we remembered Zion. We wept when we remembered the good days and the times of freedom of worship opportunities to share our faith without being tagged and and losing our jobs or losing our opportunity to go forward we we cherish the memories of the seasons of time when the earth was different when god's kingdom was more to the forefront and now we see things are different it's not bad God is going to come out of this. He's going to bring his church out of this, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. 
But there are signs all around us and these signs are, are requiring that we invite God's presence and his wisdom into our circumstance. For those of you who are here, you're present. And those of you online who have gathered the elements for communion, I wanna invite you to prepare to receive those. We'll use, take the body of, that which represents the body of the Lord Jesus first. Jesus' body was broken for us. If we're standing on the brink of the last days, I believe one of the things in terms of mission that God would would love is that if the body of Christ is broken for a broken world, if we could hurt for people who are hurting, if we could love like Jesus loves, if we could set an example above other examples to demonstrate this is the way to walk, walk in it. If we could help people understand why it's important, who's rising and who's going down, and why it's important to make certain decisions for your future and your life right now. Right now in this moment that you have. Right now while you have freedom. Right now while you have breath in your lungs. Right now while you have health. And if we could just be broken for those, it's what drives Michelle and I in ministry is a brokenness for a lost nation and a lost world around us. To go to places that other people might be afraid to go to. To carry good news, to carry love. To sometimes get spit on or have your face slapped. To be rejected. At times we've had people stand up and walk out of the congregation during a service, rejecting what God is saying and what God wants to do in their hearts and life. It breaks my heart. There's no joy in it. Behind the scenes to hear some of the things that go on, some of the things the elders have handled at this church, even before I got here, but you know, certainly I've, I've seen enough. Heartbreaking to demonstrate love to people, to show such love and compassion, to give out of your own pocket, to help, and then, and then to be rejected to be called names, to be accused. That's being broken. Turning the other cheek. Saying it's not gonna change me. I'm not gonna become a hate-filled pastor. I'm not gonna become a hateful person. I love you as much now as I loved you when you made this your home and you decided this was the place that God would lead you. That's been all throughout my ministry. That's not a story of here. That's a story of being a Christian. Some of you have faced that too. You've had friends, you've been persecuted for your faith and your belief in Christ. Small measures here in America for the most part up until now compared to the rest of the world. There are places that people are losing their lives. We were in Constanza, Romania one week after a baptism. They were jumped by the Greek Orthodox Church on their caravan to the river to baptize new Christians. And three of them were killed. The heartbreak of that pastor, we climbed six levels of stairs to get up to his apartment and he was crushed. He was ready to give up on ministry, to lay hands on him and to pray the life of God back into him. In that moment, 
people that he loved with all of his heart. He was doing their funerals one right after the other. And it was the supposed church that attacked him. Being broken, that's what Jesus was. Broken for you, broken for me. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin was upon him. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Jesus said, it is finished. I paid the price. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were broken for us. And we're asking that you would help us to be broken for those around us. That we might spill out, as Michelle was playing that song on the way to work, that, that fresh perfume, that fresh anointed oil over the feet of all mankind. Lord, that we might show the Jesus that we know and love that has changed us and given us purpose and reason to live. Let us be broken for you, but we thank you and remember that you were broken for us. And as we receive this today, we remember the body of Christ was broken for us. So it's Genesis chapter three and chapter four and the, the death of the murder of the first human being recorded. There has been a voice in the ground that calls out to God. He spoke to Cain who killed his brother and he said, I hear the voice of your brother calling to me. I hear the blood of your brother calling to me. Every drop of blood that's spilled has a voice that cries out to God that's spilt unjustly. Throughout the history of mankind, now and going forward, that blood has a voice that cries out to God. It cries out for vengeance. It cries out, God, justice. You have to deal with this. This was unjust. Parents who are weeping and crying over their children who have been slain, their innocent children who were slain by someone in violence who took their life. They're crying out to God and they're calling on Him and saying, we can't take it anymore. You have to do something about this. Jesus hanging on the cross, blood spilling down, painting the earth red. Jesus' blood had a voice too. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, have mercy. Father, have grace. Father, turn them to you. Father, unify them. Bring them together. The voice of God's Son rises enough to give us a window of time before God will act in final judgment on planet Earth. And that window of time is so that you and I can make Jesus Lord and leader of our life. Because every time a mother hits her knees in agony over the loss of an innocent child, every time there's an abortion 
a child is taken from the earth. The anguish, the cry out before the throne of God, and that God might turn to do something. He hears the voice of Jesus crying out his son. A little more time, Father. There's one more that needs to be in the kingdom. There's someone else who's almost there. You're listening today or you're here and that's you. This is your opportunity to make Jesus the Lord and the leader of your life. Will you repeat this prayer after me? Father, forgive me. I come to you just as I am. I ask you to be Lord and leader of my life. I believe that you died for me and I believe that you rose again. And I ask you to come into my heart and lead my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for that which represents the blood of the Lord Jesus. How marvelous that work at Calvary. Thank you, Jesus. A drop washes away and forgives a multitude of sins. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you love this nation, that you love this world, that you love all mankind. We invite you to do a work among us, Lord, and bring us together in unity and clarity. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus with gratitude for what you accomplished for us at Calvary in Jesus' name. Receive that which represents the blood of the Lord.